Hi, and welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. I'm Brian Hedinga, and I've got a question for you to start this episode. Who is a person that you would say has in significant ways shaped who you are? Maybe a parent or a friend, a sibling, a spouse, a coach, or some other kind of teacher or mentor. But experiences you've had with them have influenced who you have become in so many ways. I kind of wish there was a way for you to tell me their name and to tell me some stories about them, give me some quotes, some mannerisms. If we were in a small group Bible study in your living room, I would ask you to do that. But this is a podcast, and so we're not really set up to do that. However, in our next two episodes, we're going to study a section of Scripture where we'll discover that someone was, in a sense, doing that, sharing memories, quoting this person so influential in his life. We're going to discover who that person was for the Apostle John and how that person shaped who he had become. And I'll bet you can guess who John's person was. The New Testament book of 1 John is our focus in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. And it is good to have you here at the front end of a series of conversations that Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Rasul Berry will be having about the New Testament book of 1 John. Daniel will be leading the group this time around, and I think the context in which he'll set this study is going to be really helpful. And so he'll start out with that in this first segment. And then as we go through what John has to say, our hope is that you'll find perspective and challenge that will help you find in Jesus some of what John found, and that it will shape you and your relationship with the Lord, and as a result, the way you live your life. I really think it has the potential to do just that. All right, so let's get started and join Daniel and Elisa and Bill and Rasul for this study of 1 John. Who's the best storyteller that you know or that you've been around, and what makes them such a good storyteller? I think a Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary. First of all, he was hilarious. And second of all, he could tell stories where even if you could anticipate the ending, he would surprise you with it. Hmm. Just brilliant. Hmm. I think of Liz Curtis Higgs. I'll just never forget one of her stories about <laughs> being in the ladies' restroom, and she had just done her nails, <laughs> so they were wet. And then she has to wash her hands, and she's wearing all black, and she can't seem to maneuver her body in such a way as to turn on the automatic faucets. And <laughs> so she's acting <laughs> out her gyrations of trying with these wet nails to turn on the, the faucet. And I just, I'll never forget that. That was hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, I remember recently I had an opportunity to do a documentary on Juneteenth, and I spoke to Miss Opal Lee, who's known as the mm. grandmother of Juneteenth. And I remember sitting there, and it was this big moment. It was the end of the shoot, and we were, like, finally had mm. gotten this person. She was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, so it was a big deal. And she just started to talk. Would you believe it was on Juneteenth and 500 people gathered? And I was like, what's happening right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? And just dropped me right into the story. And her voice was, you know, barely above a whisper. So you had to really listen and just kind of painted the picture in a way that brought me right to where she was talking about. And it did have a twist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so painting a picture, acting out, mm -hmm. surprise. I find that the storytellers I'm most drawn to are those who don't just tell you what happened, but they help you know what the thing that happened means. Mm. 
So they tell a story, but then they kind of help you see it through their eyes. And then as they help you see it through their eyes, they hint at some of the conclusions that they drew as a result of the story or maybe something that they learned. I think of uh, a lot of novels have an epilogue at the end of the novel. And oftentimes that's where some of the best stuff is, but Mm -hmm. only if you read the whole book. Exactly. Right? So for the next two weeks, I want to spend time reading maybe the epilogue of a guy named John who has already told his story, and that's the Gospel of John. And then he writes this letter-ish thing called First John. Letter-ish thing. (laughs) (laughs) And in this letter-ish thing called First John, it's like all the wisdom of the story of the gospel begins to flow out of him as he writes it to maybe people that have read the gospel or heard it read to them. But it's like all the wisdom is pouring out like an epilogue in a novel. I know you want to take us forward, but can we pause just for a second? Why did you describe it that way as a letterish thing? I mean, we always think of First John as a letter. Right? Yeah. So if we look at just the way First John is kind of built, it doesn't have some of the typical signs that we see in a letter. So, for example, if you read the beginning of Second John, He starts off by telling you who he is and who he's writing to, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Mm. Or in 3 John, the elder to the beloved Gaius. So we get like a picture of who the author is, who they're writing to. That's called the greeting, and a lot of ancient letters had greetings. And then often, like Paul does very regularly, there's a thanksgiving. I am so thankful for you, Elisa, and all the things that I've learned from you and the stories that you've told and what God is doing in your life. (laughs) Right? Paul writes a lot of those types of things. Well, as we'll see in the first letter of John, there isn't really a Thanksgiving either. And so there's like a couple pieces that are missing Mm. that we would typically expect in a letter. Yeah, I think with the exception of some times when he speaks directly to the reader, my beloved children or something like that. It reads actually more like an essay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It feels almost like, I don't know, the ancient version of a TED Talk or an essay (laughs) or something where it's very intentional and each idea is important, but it's not written in kind of the typical letter format. And so it reads a little bit more like a sermon or a treatise or an essay. It's also personal, though, and we'll see that pretty often. He uses a lot of I language, we language says beloved and calls the audience my little children, which we had a conversation with Randy Richards about letter writing in the ancient world. And I was able to ask him, like, how common is it to see those types of words, beloved of my little children? He's like, that's not common in letters. So there's something deeply personal happening Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And when did he write it? We don't know for sure, but maybe in his old age. But I think, again, what we're going to see is we're going to see that what he's talking about is very experiential and John's one of the few people Mm -hmm. that could write this type of treatise or essay. I think we see this at the very beginning. If somebody would just read 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 and picture an old guy sitting on a stoop or sitting on a rocking chair in front of maybe an older house And he's beginning to share the wisdom or the epilogue to the story Mm -hmm. of the gospel of John. So someone read 1 John 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Hmm. So what jumps out to you as you see that? Experiential. Yeah. You, you know, you led right into that. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at, we've touched with our hands. It's a very tangible experience, which is a little bit surprising and shocking to me because so much of my faith growing up and what I've learned about faith is such a head experience of like thinking the right things or believing the right things, which there's belief here, there's Mm -hmm. faith here. But John is testifying to the things he saw, the things he heard, the things he touched with his hands. Yeah, I think when you go back into John's gospel, you find out that he was one of the first two disciples he and Andrew Andrew went and got Peter and apparently John went and got James and they became the first core of the 12 and you see Peter James and John Peter James and John that kind of inner circle repeatedly mm-hmm. but then there's a moment and it's the night of the Passover the day before the crucifixion and one of the gospels says Jesus sent two of his disciples to prepare the Passover and another one of the gospels I think it's Luke says that it was Peter and John. Hmm. And from that time on, it's never Peter, James, and John, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's Peter and John. And that goes through the resurrection in John 20, Mm -hmm. and then even into the book of Acts. You see Peter and John Mm -hmm. hanging out together all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a quite an interesting shift in relationships there. Yeah. I've, you know, heard one observation that wondered if John was a reluctant writer because he's always <laughs> explaining why he's writing, you know, like in John yeah. 20, I'm writing these things so that you can believe <laughs> that Jesus is the son. And here is like, yep. so here's why I'm right. It's like, he breaks the fourth wall. It's like, this yeah. is why I'm doing this. Yeah. And, you know, especially because of even his reluctance to identify himself in the story, you know, and kind of speak in this way where it's like these things we have seen and heard was really talking about himself but i think he has this humility where he doesn't want to put that out in the front but he also feels like this is helpful for me to pass on my eyewitness experience so that you who haven't had that experience can actually have your faith strengthened by someone who was there because we've talked about this a lot of times i mean if the resurrection isn't true we have no faith and you know Mm -hmm. the smartest in my opinion apologetic argument is i saw it it's real (laughs) i touched it i heard it this is a real thing so could be just that yeah and if we think about how experiential john's relationship with jesus was there's a little verse kind of hidden in the Gospel of John that I think just illustrates this. And it's a verse that, honestly, I've missed most of my life. But I think it's just really surprising. It's John 13, verse 23. Uh, Bill, could you grab that for us? Sure. And this is at the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, John 13, 23. There is reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's 
what you were referring to. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't name himself. He uses other descriptors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And throughout the gospel, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Mm-hmm. And here's that little like spot in there that they're reclining at the table. And John happens to be right next to Jesus. Yeah. And you have this little hint that not only was he reclining next to Jesus, I mean, they're like best buds at this point. Like he, he's got his head laying on Jesus' chest. So when he says, this is the story I've touched, mm. he means physically I have laid my head on Jesus's chest while we were eating dinner together. Mm. And so that's just a, a much more intimate, tangible experience of faith, one that maybe we all desire at times, mm. but one where we have one who did experience that and is passing it down to us. And so I want us to picture an old wise man sitting on a stoop or in a rocking chair, and he's sharing what the story means. Uh, and it's not a story that he heard about from someone else. It's a story that he saw, mm-hmm. that he heard, and that he touched. And I think if we can embrace that as who the storyteller is, it may change the way that we see the rest of the letter. Listening to Discover the Word with Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Rasul Berry. And in our next two podcasts, Daniel will be leading the team through a series that explores the New Testament book of 1 John. And over the course of these conversations, we'll be reading the reflections of this older man who spent significant time with Jesus. And we'll find out how the experiences John had with our Lord changed his life and what things John remembers Jesus stressing the most. And so in this next segment, we're going to see that one of the ideas Jesus talked about that really stood out to John was an emphasis on light and darkness. What do most horror movies have in common? <laughs> People who make lousy decisions. Exactly. I'm thinking <laughs> that about that so commercial. True. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Head for the cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's get in the car with a stranger. Yeah. I think about nighttime. Yep. A lot know. of darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get too much into the disturbing stuff, Mm -hmm. um, let's just focus in on the darkness for a second. Why do they take (laughs) place in the dark? And what is it about the darkness that like just sets up a Mm -hmm. horror movie to be unnerving and scary? Well, it's not so scary when somebody jumps out at you in the middle of the day, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's just not so scary. But when you're alone on a dark street Mm -hmm. at midnight and someone jumps out at you, it's scary, Mm -hmm. no matter what it is that jumps out at you. Yeah, and I think part of it is because I think for our own sense of personal safety, we rely a lot on sight, Mm -hmm. and that's hampered, obviously, by darkness, whereas in the daylight, like you said, things aren't as scary because we can see what's coming, usually. Yeah. 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 If someone means ill and wants to <laughs> hurt you they have an advantage if mm-hmm. it's night out or it's dark mm-hmm. and you can't see them to kind of get that first jump on you yeah and historically most of the world has lived in a very different version of darkness than even we do because yeah. we have access to lights in a way that yeah. for so much of the history of the world yeah. there wasn't access to lights mm-hmm. and as a result of that there's legends about what happens in the darkness and there's so many stories about darkness and how scary and unnerving Mm -hmm. and how bad things can happen in the dark and so as we continue sitting before the feet of this old wise man named john who didn't just see what jesus did didn't just hear jesus teaching but actually spent time physically with jesus in fact he even laid his head on jesus chest in the upper room 
let's see in this treatise letterish thing called First John, and we called it that because it doesn't have all the same characteristics of a typical letter. In this essay, let's see how he describes light and darkness, which is one of the themes, because he had a lot to say about it. And the first time that this kind of uh, shows up is in the section right after the one we read in our last conversation. And this is First John 1, verses 5 through 7. Elisa, could you grab that for us? You bet. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in the darkness, we lie and we do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Yeah, so this is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What's interesting as we think about First John is he kind of starts in the same place that the gospel starts, which is in the beginning. Yeah. And how does the gospel of John start? In the beginning was what? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he starts talking about light. Um, mm-hmm. As Elise was reading that, I thought about the comment you made in our first conversation on this, Daniel, when you said that it's almost like First John forms the epilogue to the gospel where he pulls out the main ideas. Mm. And obviously one of the main ideas in the gospel of John is light versus darkness. Yeah. And that made a lot of sense. Mm. And... The Gospel of John's surprising because the other Gospels start with Jesus coming to the world. Mm-hmm. And the Gospel of John starts with Jesus in the world, but in a very different way. And, and what is that? Well, Daryl Bach told us that the three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke start from the earth up. But John starts from heaven down. And uh, I think that's what you're kind of... Yeah. It goes back to actually the original creation is that right. Jesus was in existence way back before. Right. And then I think about even the initial creation account that John is riffing on Mm -hmm. Genesis 1, let there be light. Yeah. It's the first thing that happens. So God shows up in this world that's formless and void and his spirit is hovering over the waters. And the first thing he does when he's there is goes, let there be light. Mm -hmm. And first John 1, 5 says that God is light. And so when I read all that together, so Genesis and the beginning of the gospel and here, It's almost like instead of creating light, which it seems like God did in Genesis, but instead of creating light, it's almost like he just enters the room. (laughs) And as a result, like light Mm. is there because God himself is light. And that's kind of a theme that shows up throughout the rest of the Bible. So Isaiah 9, 2, they have seen a great light, which is a verse that Matthew quotes in his gospel. And what are they kind of driving at with both that prophetic picture in Isaiah and in Matthew's quotation of it. Well, you know, the people were in darkness. Mm. Yep. So there's this aspect of them not being able to find direction and guidance mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. And then the light is the Messiah, mm-hmm. you know, that his entrance into the world provides them that clarity and that connection and that ability to stop stumbling and start walking with God. And Jesus actually says, I am the light. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. John 8, 12. Mm -hmm. And so we see these themes of the gospel of John speaking again directly into this essay letterish thing called first John. And then John kind of pivots in 
this essay in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he's also talking about light, but listen for a little bit of a, a difference there. Bill, could you read that for us? Sure. First John 2, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother or sister, is still in darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness. Yeah, That's so, strong. Yeah, pretty strong, huh? So in that first passage that Elisa read, we see that God is light. Mm -hmm. And when we walk in the light, we're walking basically with God in God's ways. And we're good with each other, yeah. therefore. And then 1 John 2 kind of amplifies that and makes it a little more intense. What is he saying in that section? That being in the light of God should impact how we relate to one another. Yeah, which is a theme that Jesus teaches on in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five fourteen. Jesus calls his citizens of this new kingdom, the light of the world, mm -hmm. a city on a hill. In Romans 13, 12, Paul kind of riffs on this idea, telling his hearers to put on the armor of light. And so not only is God the light and Jesus is the light, but his followers are invited to represent this light in the world, to let it cover them and let it be how they interact with others in the world. In fact, light is so much a part of the people of God that that's why in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, I think we see that the enemy tries to disguise himself mm. in light. Hmm. Because what better way to disguise yourself than to try to put on the thing <laughs> that mm -hmm. is supposed to represent the people of God. And then as we look fast forward all the way to Revelation, which also was written by John, the same guy, how does the whole story of the Bible end as it relates to light? Well, it says in the New Jerusalem, there's no sun because God himself is the light of it. So Genesis 1, God shows up and light fills the world. End of the story it's like it's back to where we were at the beginning, where God mm -hmm. is present and light fills the world. I wonder if John is pulling on so many of these threads as mm. he's writing these things, that God is light, those who follow God walk in light, and have light as the thing that they hold in common with one another. And then how does he define what light is in this passage? Well, you know, the thing, you know, I know it's like what Bill said earlier, is that there's this ethical component, mm -hmm. that this isn't yeah. just theory or a theology that is something to sit in the armchair and reflect on but this is a litmus test for who we can rightfully say we belong to and identify mm -hmm. with and he says if you hate a believer then you're in darkness like you're not yeah. walking in light but whoever loves so mm -hmm. love is light hate is darkness mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. and one of the phrases that jumps out to me especially in relation to what you just said Rasul because the darkness has brought on blindness. Mm -hmm. What do you think that means in this context? Hmm. Well, when you're in darkness, as John writes, you don't know the way to go because darkness has brought on blindness. So 
it hinders us from making progress. It hinders us from knowing the right way. And uh, it hinders us from, as he says, relating to one another the way that we're supposed to. Yeah. And maybe we're blind, if you will, to our own errors mm-hmm. when we're in the darkness. We, we can't even see that we're, yeah. we're hating. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can't recognize it for what it is. Yeah. And how when we give in to things like hatred... It shapes the way we see the world, ourselves, others, what our role is, who God is, and all that. So it becomes something that shapes so much more than just my relationship with a person. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of an article. Do you remember that soccer team that got stuck in the caves in Thailand? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the articles that came out, and I think it was right before they were rescued, they were trying to talk about what would the effects be of being in the cave for that long on this soccer team. And one of the things that they talked about is that they'll probably experience temporary vision loss because their bodies have gotten used to no light. So all of a sudden when they're in light, even though they have the ability to see, they're not going to have the ability for a little while, potentially. Wouldn't that because be scary? Of, mm. Yeah. And so it... it mm. It just reminds me of how darkness, when we're living in darkness, when we're surrounded by it, it almost gets heavier. It almost compounds. It influences so much more. Disorienting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think what we see here is we see that the wise man wants us to know that God's light. And when he walks into the room, it fills up with light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And the whole story of the Bible began with light when God entered the room. It's going to end in light when we don't need a sun or moon because God's light actually lights up the world. But that doesn't just stop with God. There's an invitation here that this light that is God becomes something that so becomes a part of who we are that we become those agents of showing light to the world. And the best way to do that is to love one another. Yeah, light and darkness, a key part of what Jesus taught and a key part of what John stresses in 1 John. Next, we'll discover another of the life-shaping messages that John remembers from Jesus, summed up in four words, we all make mistakes. Now, that, of course, isn't a direct quote from Jesus, but it is a message that obviously shaped John and will shape you and me when we truly grasp all that's included in those four words, we all make mistakes. That conversation follows this word about our special project that we hope you'll consider being part of. Yeah, I want to take just a moment out of our study of 1 John to remind you of the special initiative that we're doing in cooperation with our film team here at Our Daily Bread Ministries. Now, in our last podcast, Bible geographer Dr. Jack Beck was our guest here at the table. And we mentioned how right now, preparations are underway to film a fourth and final season of our popular video series called The Holy Land with Jack Beck. This unique video Bible study shows you the places where biblical history happened, points out the distinctive geography of that region, and how in reality, it gives you a fresh lens through which to read the Bible. And because we know how much listeners have appreciated the perspective that Jack brings to our studies here on Discover the Word, uh, we're asking you to partner with us to help cover the cost of the production for the final season of this Holy Land video series. Now, here is Jack with a quick word about the importance of this project. I honestly wish that absolutely every one of our viewers could come along with us and just 
tag along and see. But if you can't be that person who comes along in that way, let me say there's another way to come alongside us and support this and help us do something for the greater kingdom good. Uh, I would uh, love to have you join us uh, financially in supporting this work in connection with the Holy Land. Yeah, and so if you're feeling that tug, please consider partnering with us on this important production. To give a gift toward production of the Season 4 of The Holy Land, simply go to discovertheword.org, click on the Donate tab, and then when you give, your donation will go toward this Holy Land project. Discovertheword.org, click Donate. And now back to our study of First John. When was the last time you used the phrase or someone used it to you? We all make mistakes. I think about it in the context of a defense lawyer okay. um, defending like a <laughs> client. And sometimes it's an understandable or legitimate um, <laughs> use of the phrase. Others is like, mm, I don't know. Do about we all that. do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Russell. I think sometimes using that phrase that way can be an attempt to minimize mm-hmm. the level of the wrong that was done. It's true, for instance, that when you sin, you make a mistake. But it's not like the same as saying two plus two equals five, right? right? Mm-hmm. right. It's just not the same. Yeah, and I think it makes me wince when I receive that mm-hmm. phrase. Like if I'm apologizing and somebody says, oh, we all make mistakes. But the reality is I think lots of times people mean it as a comforting kind mm-hmm. word. Yeah. You know, kind of a don't sweat it sort mm-hmm, of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for me, probably the last time I used it was playing golf with my son a couple of months ago. And um, he hit a crummy shot and turned to me and said, I should have hit the seven iron. Well, we all make mistakes. You know? <laughs> uh, he hit the wrong club and he didn't get the result that he wanted. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's a mistake. Yeah. yeah, I think I usually use it to encourage others. Mm-hmm. For example, I was coaching a youth soccer team, a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds, and one of the kids was playing defense and trying to get in front of the ball before another kid on the other team shot it, and it happened to hit my player's head <laughs> and go into the goal. <laughs> so it was an own goal, and and it probably was like because it hit his head that they scored because the goalie was in a good spot. Yeah. And he came off the field just dissolved in tears because he was like, mm-hmm. he let his whole team down and da, 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 da. So I started sharing with him a story of like one of the professional teams that I follow and how that goalie made a huge mistake and it led to an easy goal. And I was like, he gets paid millions and millions of dollars. And how much do you get paid to play? And he's like, nothing. I was like, yeah. So see, we all make mistakes. It's no big deal. So it was used in that mm-hmm. context as an encouragement. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we have to use a phrase like that to challenge someone who thinks they get it right all the time yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nobody's so, perfect is maybe the way we put there it. There you go. Yeah. Nobody's yep. perfect, dude. You think you are, but mm-hmm. 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 Yep. And so sometimes we run into those people that like really think they have it all together <laughs> or they do everything right. Yeah. And it's actually a really hard conversation because they don't see it at all. And you're trying to encourage them with, yeah. ah, no, yeah. like... You make mistakes too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I heard a guy say years ago, I know I must be right because if I was wrong, I'd change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I believe he was probably saying it tongue in cheek. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I think what we'll find as we continue to sit with our new old wise friend <laughs> who's sharing with us his wisdom from spending so much time with Jesus and not just hearing the message, not just seeing Jesus, but actually touching Jesus. Like he knew him personally. And I think in this conversation, we might hear him say that we all make mistakes. And I think we'll hear it in both ways. Mm. I think it depends on who's okay. hearing it, right? Yeah. Is yeah. it the person that just messed up and they're looking for encouragement? I think this old wise man mm. would look at them and say like, hey, it's okay. We mm-hmm. all make mistakes. For somebody that struggled with what we talked about in our last conversation with hating a brother or sister, I think you might look at them and go like, no, listen up. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Including you. Including you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. We'll begin there, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 2. And Rasul, if you'll read that for us. Sure. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. (laughs) My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So where do you hear kind of the two ways mm-hmm. of saying we all make mistakes? Well, I think the fact that he's using first person plural mm-hmm. matters. He's not pointing the finger and saying you, 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 you. Yep. He's saying we. Mm-hmm. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And so just. that's the encouragement part. Yeah. If yep. we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So I think the fact that he's not necessarily going at them. Mm-hmm. individually is encouraging. We're all in the same boat. We're all imperfect. And yeah. yet, if we say we've not sinned, we make God himself, the one who's faithful and just, a liar. Yeah. And his word is not in us. So, hey, dude, nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are, you know, the stakes are high here. Mm-hmm. You're either lying on God or you have mm-hmm. a way of escape of dealing with this aspect of guilt and shame. Like mm-hmm. those are pretty two big different doors to walk through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The word here for sin is kind of most simply defined as missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't really help us too much because if we see the way that word for sin is used throughout the New Testament, we find out it is a big bucket mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of different things mm-hmm. that kind of fall into that all the way from one extreme side being like full out rebellion against God mm-hmm. to the other side being, you know, more simple everyday types of mm-hmm. mistakes. Mm-hmm. Is it anywhere like what Paul writes in Romans for all have sinned and yeah. fall short of the glory of God? I mean, that's yep. kind of the missing the mark thing you're going for. Yeah, I think exactly. that's why it's so challenging to recognize it, because even if when we know God, we steer clear of the biggies you know Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna murder and you know i'm not gonna create a false idol we may miss the mark of being perfect i still gonna harbor a grudge you know i'm still gonna be selfish and put Mm -hmm. myself before others you know i'm still gonna get too angry and putting my anger into actions that are inappropriate you know and i think that's what's tricky about it yeah. Is that even though we're in Christ, we can still not be perfect. Yep. And in our last conversation, he kind of began to describe what missing the mark looks like. What was that? 
hating your brother yeah, and sister. Yeah, hating your brother and sister or not loving them. And you're not in the light. You're in the darkness. Yeah, and I want to kind of pull on that yeah, a little bit. Because <laughs> it can feel so yeah. dismissive. Like, oh, mm-hmm. that who hates their brother or sister. Uh-huh. That, but I do tie it and connect it to this aspect of forgiveness and this idea of how easy it is to hold a grudge mm-hmm. with someone, especially who has harmed you repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And does it mean you're literal in Christ, brother or sister, your other believers, or is it okay to hate, you know, the autocratic, horrible dictator of another country who's causing people just terrible, mm-hmm. terrible duress? Is that okay? Is he really meaning we just need to love each other? Yeah, well, I mean, if we think about Jesus taking all of the law and the prophets and summarizing it in the big two, which really is kind of the big one, part A, part B, <laughs> is love God with mm-hmm. everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to describe the neighbor as not someone that they knew personally, but someone who saw someone on the side of the road beat up and took care of them. And that's mm-hmm. the story of the Good Samaritan. So when John's talking about brothers and sisters? He heard Jesus, he saw Jesus, and he touched Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he probably is thinking about a story like that. Mm-hmm. Or uh, it could be that over the years, I mean, you think about how the language of the church developed in family language, which, Mm -hmm. as you reminded us, Randy Richards told us, was very unusual in letters in the ancient world and stuff. That family language was very important because it spoke about that special bond and special relationship. So, I mean, it seems to me that when he uses that very specific family language, he's talking in-house. Yeah, I see that. And at the same time, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, I'm not saying you're saying this, but some would use as an escape hatch to say, Mm -hmm. I don't have to. to, But whereas I think it's more because if you can't love your own family, then how are you going to love somebody else out extended? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And because if you look at verse two of chapter two, if anyone does sin, he is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not for mm-hmm. ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it's like this invitation to forgiveness and to becoming a brother or sister is mm-hmm. open to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And it's not up to us to say, no, not you. You're too lousy. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's a coincidence that in the same conversation about not hating your brother or sister, which also has to do with this aspect of forgiveness, there's also this reminder that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all, all our, our unrighteousness. Like, do you think that that's yeah. there deliberately to even kind of remind people what you're called to do mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. has been done for you in infinite amount? Well, we already saw in the conversation, God is light, that that doesn't just end with God being light, Mm. but God is light so that his followers walk in the light and then bring the light into the world. And so in the same way, I think we'll see throughout the whole essay of first John that God is love. So you should love Mm -hmm. God is light. So you should be light. God forgives. So in this context, God forgives. And so I think it's very intentional that he puts those together. And that kind of uh, draws attention to, I think, another important point here too, which is John could have spent some time defining what sin is, but it was almost like the point he wanted to make here was not what sin is or isn't, but it's what Jesus does about it. 
And we see a lot of parallel language. So if we say we have no sin, but if we confess our sins, see how Mm -hmm. similar those Mm -hmm. phrases are. Mm -hmm. If we say we have not sinned, Mm -hmm. if anyone sins. So there's like this rhythm to this section. And then it ends with what Jesus has done. And Elisa, as you pointed out, what does Jesus do? Mm. He makes it possible for everybody to be clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It occurred to me as I was listening to you guys, it occurred to me for the very first time. I mean, I've probably quoted 1 John 1, 9 a thousand times Mm -hmm. because it's such a great verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. But it doesn't say if we confess our sins to him. And it made me wonder mm. if even when we confess our sins to one another, mm. that he's in the midst of that act, mm-hmm. that action. Mm-hmm. And that also speaks to walking in the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you can still be in darkness and be like, well, I confessed it to God, so I don't have to tell anybody. But it's a whole different story if I go through the process of recognizing that confessing to those around me who may even have been impacted by my sin is a part of the process of being in the light. And of course, that's where a full sense of restoration Mm -hmm. comes from. Yeah. And that's where I think we can hear the voice of this old wise man, Mm. right? Because we need someone who's kind of outside of the story sometimes, outside of our direct experiences to look in Mm -hmm. and to encourage us in that way. We need someone who's been around for a while to be the one that looks at us and goes, hey, we all make mistakes, Mm -hmm. or hey, no, no, we all make mistakes, Mm -hmm. but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Mm -hmm. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in the same way that you've received that forgiveness, be people that go and make it right with others too. I know not all older people are wise, (laughs) (laughs) but for those who are, what typically makes them so wise? Mm. Because they've lived and they've learned. You know, I I think that's maybe the differentiation between older people who are wise and aren't wise. But when you learn from your living, you can be wise. Hmm. Yeah. Somebody said that good decisions are the byproduct of experience and experience is the byproduct of bad decisions. Oh, that's good. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love uh, listening to wise older people because it's like they just have stories. You could just mm-hmm. double click on something and unfold. Well, 20 years ago we experienced this mm-hmm. or 10 years ago and you just see that wisdom kind of just bubble up because mm-hmm. of what they've experienced and what they learned from what they experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's older, wiser, and they've said something to you like, well, one day you might find that that's not as important as you thought it was (laughs) or something like that. If so, are you willing to share that story? I'll share about it. Uh, I was in my ordination council and one of the people who were doing the interrogation uh, asked me a question about something and I gave back a real... Not quite snarky. I mean, ordination council is not the place for snarky, no, but it's kind of a wisecrack kind of answer that was very resolute and determined. And he kind of looked at me and winked and said, you'll change your mind. <laughs> and I did. He was exactly right. Sure. Yeah. And, yet, you know, I think about going to parenting and stuff and what mm-hmm. matters and what really doesn't matter. And I'm so grateful to have had some parenting mentors ahead of us in the game. 
you know, going, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I think part of maturity that I'm trying to learn as I hopefully become mature over time (laughs) is learning to value the right things Mm -hmm. and to not put as much weight or value in the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of see that in this next section of 1 John. We've slowly been making our way through chapter one and now we're into chapter two. Mm -hmm. This is 1 John chapter two, verses 15 through 17. And so as we think about this old wise man who has written this essay for us, perhaps think of him as he's saying these words. So Bill, why don't you read it for us? (laughs) (laughs) The unwise old man. Uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. So the old wise man has already mentioned love a couple times Mm -hmm. in the letter, and love in particular is going to be a huge theme of this letter, Mm -hmm. which we'll see as we keep going. Where else has he mentioned love? For example, chapter 2, verse 5, he has a phrase in there about love. What does it say? But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Yeah. This is how we know we are in him. Yeah. And those who hear the word and obey it, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. in those who let it become a part of who they are and they they hear God's message and they respond to it with obedience, which goes all the way back to the beginning of the story with Israel Mm -hmm. and the preamble to the law, which is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And in that it's hear and obey. The word Shema is hear and obey, Mm -hmm. um, that the Lord is one. So we see that here. So the love of God has reached perfection, which is kind of an interesting phrase. And then it also shows up in verse 10 of chapter two. Maybe Rasul, you could read that for us. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. Yeah. So we have two references to love. One is hearing God's message and responding to it with obedience. We have another one, which is loving a brother or sister, which is actually abiding in the light, which is an interesting language. And so we begin, if we think about that in comparison to 1 John two fifteen through 17, or how it might help us see what he's talking about there, those first two examples we just talked about, he tells us to love in a certain way. But in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love Mm -hmm. in this way. And so we begin to see kind of this contrast of loves. Yeah, the other thing I noticed is that contrary to how our culture tends to talk about love, which is a very emotionally Mm -hmm. oriented sentiment, right? Or sexualized. Right. Like this is very oriented on action and what you do. So. You know, it's like, okay, love has been perfected when you obey, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or in this context, uh, verse 10, we uh, just read, whoever loves brother or sister lives in the light. He's not just saying whoever has a warm feeling about someone. He's saying that whoever demonstrates that certain commitment to that person by what they do is walking in the light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting contrast to what we looked at in another conversation about when you don't have love, you don't know where you're going. You know, mm-hmm. when you're in the darkness, yeah. you don't know where you're going. And this is further using that metaphor of when you have love, you know exactly where you're going. Yeah. And so he says, do not 
love the world or the things in the world. And then he gives us three big categories of potential ways that we might see that we're loving the world. What are those three big categories? The lust of the flesh Mm -hmm. and eyes and the pride of life. That's in verse 16. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, I heard those three things described one time as Satan's playbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, the enemy's playbook, because they're the exact same three things we find in Genesis chapter three. Interesting. The lust of the eyes, the fruit was good to look upon, lust of the flesh, it was good to take in, and pride of life, you'll be like God. Mm-hmm. You know, the same three oh, plays good. recycle mm-hmm. throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. There's a theologian named Barclay who calls these the rivals of the human heart. Mm. So I'd like to just kind of dive into each one. So the first one, desire of the flesh, which as I was thinking about this reminded me of a passage in Galatians that Mm -hmm. talks about flesh and talks about God's spirit. Mm -hmm. And it says the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And that's Galatians 5 verses 16 through 23. What are some of the things that are the works of the flesh that are described in that passage and how might they be opposite to what God wants? Well, uh, verses 19 through 21 categorize a whole bunch of them, Mm -hmm. everything from sexual immorality to strife to jealousy to quarreling to envy. I mean, there's a lot of different things in there, Mm -hmm. Um, and they all kind of mitigate against, at some level, contentment. And I think it's fascinating. It starts out in verse 19, the works of the flesh are obvious. (laughs) That's like this catch-all. They're obvious. You know, it's not like you have to go, hmm, this is good or bad. They're obvious. Yeah. And what's interesting, if you look at the list, we've just seen that when John's pulling 1 John together, he's comparing these obedient love for others with love of the world. Mm -hmm. And all of these fleshly desires, acts of the flesh, are things that cause harm to others too. Mm -hmm. And so we have a love for our brother or sister, or a love for the world is kind of this contrast that's building. Because if you think about the cost of things like sexual immorality or who that impacts or enmity or jealousy or anger or factions. Could you even (laughs) drive that further and say it's either a love for others or a love for self? Yeah. Because all of those things. Yeah. And that was something I think is important to draw out that flesh isn't just meaning like the physical body, but the Mm -hmm. Greek word sarks, you know, it does have this more of a personal kind of soulish aspect to Hmm. what it is that we crave. Yeah. Because obviously something like jealousy or anger, that's not like feeding my Mm -hmm. body, but it's something that is a prioritization of self Mm -hmm. as opposed to God. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's in contrast to the fruit of the spirit in that passage, which are all things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, things that edify and encourage and build stronger relationships between one another. Mm -hmm. So then we have desire of the eyes. And I wanted to remind us of a series we did (laughs) where we talked about the evil eye and people can go and listen to that one. But in that, it was all about envy. And there's a similar theme happening here. Mm -hmm. And we talked about in that discussion that envy is a little different from jealousy or coveting. Jealousy may be, I see something that someone has and I want that. 
But envy is like, I see something that somebody has and I don't want them to have that. Mm. Mm. And so maybe perhaps John's riffing on that a little bit in the desire mm. of the eyes. <laughs> My mom used to say, because I would routinely get more food than I could consume. <laughs> there you go. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so that's so a lot of times our eyes can be bigger than yeah. what we could even sustain or, you know, especially if we see somebody else has it. Good. And so eyes are a place where, just like you described, we sometimes have bigger eyes than the thing that we need, mm-hmm. right? And there's lots of other ways we could probably apply that too, where mm-hmm. we think of the ways our eyes get us in trouble. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jesus uses that with some pretty extreme language, says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out which has led to a bunch of misappropriation of Jesus' command too. (laughs) But I think Jesus uses extreme language there because he wants to just warn us at how dangerous our eyes can be. But then there's this last category, pride of riches. What do you think he's talking about there? Well, first of all, the translation that I'm more accustomed to is the pride of life. Mm -hmm. And the focus seems to be more on pride. I'm not sure what to make of the translation pride of riches. I don't know what it's pointing to. Mm. I think pride of life is, again, self and ego driven and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But uh, pride of riches, I'm a little fuzzy on that one. Well, what do riches sometimes become for us? Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency or something like that. And so that's where I see that connection between the two is holding on to your achievements or your riches in a way that changes how you interact with God or with others. Which is pride, you know, that Mm -hmm. is the main thing because pride is thinking you're God and he's not pretty much. Yeah, and so it might be selfishness or false hope in a savings account or getting wealthy off the backs of others. Anything where you no longer need or depend on God for provision or for life, Mm -hmm. but you kind of begin to depend on yourself. Mm -hmm. And all of those things, John tells us, come not from the Father, but from the world. And so part of the brokenness is not following God, not walking in the light, as we've already seen, but following the world. And then there's this last little phrase, and I thought this was interesting, and this will be a good way to kind of finish this section of our conversation. The world and its desire are passing away. Think about that old wise man. Why, why would he say something like that? <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty close, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think on a couple fronts. Like, one... Obviously, there's this sense of the truth that these things are temporal Mm -hmm. and contrast to the fruit of the spirit and the spirit himself, who is Mm -hmm. eternal. But then also there's this aspect where I guess when you get older, some of the things that were appetites that you had or (laughs) just don't, you know, end up being the same. They don't matter as much the same anymore. And uh, that might be a what's going on not to say that folks who are older can't still struggle with the yeah, you yeah. know these things but i do think that there is a sense where it's like ah, been there done that mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah it's like a sign of maturity here and so what i hear in in this old man's wisdom in this section sorry. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so along with some tiredness <laughs> just comes from a lifetime of seeing people put hope and confidence in the wrong things mm-hmm. And he's lived long enough to see that loving the world and the things in the world doesn't bring the life that many people think it will bring. But trusting in God and following God and loving his ways does lead to true life. And so I think that's where we hear this old man saying, you know, one day you might find out that all those things you're putting hope in don't give you the hope that you want. But here's something that does. 
advice worth hearing and paying attention to coming out of his experience with Jesus. John knows that loving the world too much gets in the way of our relationship with God. Well, we will wrap up the first half of our study of 1 John in just a moment with a conversation about Antichrist, because many books and movies have speculated about the Antichrist in the end times. But in 1 John, this dedicated and beloved disciple of Jesus reveals that it's possible for any of us to be anti or against Christ. When are we being anti-Christ? Well, we'll explore that in just a moment. But first, one more reminder that Our Daily Bread Ministries is in the middle of raising some funds for the Holy Land Season 4 with Dr. Jack Beck. I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, and on our last podcast, Jack was here on the show with us. These Holy Land videos are Bible-centered documentaries filmed on location in the land of the Bible with Jack as your guide so that you can see the places mentioned in the Bible and better connect with the stories that we discuss every week here on Discover the Word. As Jack always reminds us, place and location always matter. There are currently three seasons of the Holy Land videos that are available on the Our Daily Bread YouTube channel and also on our Our Daily Bread media hub at odb.org media. And uh, he is in the planning phase right now for an upcoming fourth season of that show. And so for the first time, we are inviting you, our Discover the Word listeners, to be part of making this production happen by giving a donation of any amount to support the Holy Land's fourth season. I think everyone has been feeling the impact of inflation, haven't we? And so it's no surprise that it's become increasingly expensive to travel with a film crew and and do all the things necessary to put together a production like this. So right now, we're asking for your help. Would you consider partnering with us financially in this effort? All donations now through the end of June will go to cover the costs of this helpful production with Jack Beck. So to donate now, go to discovertheword.org, click Donate, and you can give right there. Discovertheword.org, click Donate. And now let's wrap up part one of our study of 1 John here on the Discover the Word podcast. As we close out this first week of conversations on 1 John, let's revisit where we've been. What are some of the things that have jumped out to you? Probably the first thing that jumped out to me was when you presented an idea I have never heard before, and that is that 1 John almost acts like an epilogue to the Gospel of John where he takes the ideas that are embedded in the story of Jesus and lifts them out and deals with them in a different way, in a different form. I thought that was really interesting. I think we're seeing that there's a lot of truth in that. A little bit of a synopsis. And I also like that you pointed out, and we've learned a lot about this as we've layered our learnings over the years, but that it's a letter-ish kind of thingy, I think was your very theological explanation of the book. You know, we, we think it's a book, and then we think, oh no, it's a letter. But in reality, it's kind of like an essay. It's mm-hmm. a letterish kind of thingy. And that's helpful, you know, to let it be what it is and not smush it into a format. Yeah. Yeah. I like the aspect of the just the picture of sitting with this older mm. statesman, this grandpa type figure mm-hmm. in a rocking chair and listening to him share insights and wisdom reflecting from his life with Jesus and saying, hey, these are some core things that you need to have with you little children. Yeah. And it's very endearing. Mm-hmm. Way. It's like you want to crawl up in his lap and yes. let him tell you a story. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I love to just how this whole letterish thing starts where we hear him saying like, I didn't just hear it. Mm-hmm. I didn't just see it. I touched it. <laughs> like, like, like I laid my head on Jesus chest. Yeah. When I talk about the upper room and what happened, I couldn't have been any closer to Jesus yeah. in that moment. And it just brings a different feel to it, I yeah. think. Well, we also spent a lot of time talking about how one of the main themes in John's gospel, the theme of light versus darkness, shows up very early and often. Yep. And then we spent a whole conversation talking about we make mistakes. And I love the play on words that we all make mistakes. That's an encouragement. And then the rebuke of, hey, we all make mistakes. Nobody's mm-hmm. above that. And both are true, you know, for when we walk with him, you know, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but we're all going to make them. Yeah. Right. And that those sins have a certain quality about them that he described as worldliness or, you know, the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And that those things, however tempting they may appear, are fading Mm -hmm. and are not substantial and are not going to give you the life that you Mm -hmm. seek. Yeah. And he's been around the block enough times to know that's true. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. It's not somebody that is young and has some good ideas. It's someone who has lived with these for a long time and is speaking out of that experience. In a sense, it's kind of similar to Ecclesiastes, Mm -hmm. which has popped up a couple of times Mm -hmm. in our conversations. Mm -hmm. Because in Ecclesiastes, one of the refrains that comes up over and over again is, vanity of vanity all is vanity Mm -hmm. it's empty it has no substance and that's one of the things john is telling us perhaps that you learn through years of life are the things that have substance and the things that are just vanity yeah so as we kind of close out this week of conversations i want to look at two passages that we haven't looked at yet one's shorter and one's longer and what i think we'll see in these is we're going to hear this old wise man talking about those who abide and end up being faithful. Mm. So those who walk in the light, those who follow, and then those who give up for one reason or another and walk away. So I think we'll hear both of those themes in here. Let's begin by reading 1 John chapter 2. We're going to rewind just a little bit to verses 3 through 6, and then we're going to jump forward in that chapter to verses 18 through 28. So, Elisa, would you read 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 for us? You bet. Now, by this we may be sure that we know him, if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I've come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. That last verse in particular, by this we may be sure Mm -hmm. we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. There's some weight in that when you see it as an old man saying that, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. What do you see there, Rasul? You know, I see that word abide just Mm -hmm. leap off the page. Mm -hmm. Um, Another theme from the Gospel of John, right? right. Exactly where I go, John 15, you know, know, abide with me and, you know, I abide with you. Apart from you, Mm -hmm. you cannot bear any fruit. And Mm -hmm. so here he is talking about, you know, the type of, obedience that springs from a sense of love and it all starts with abiding. 
And let's see now that mm-hmm. in contrast with what we see in verses 18 through 28. And so, Bill, if you'll get us started and then we can kind of just read okay. around, feel free to stop wherever it makes sense to. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. So what are the two groups of people that we see in this passage? Well, the ones that he refers to as antichrists, Mm -hmm. those who are in opposition to or against Christ or Messiah. And what are some of the qualities or characteristics of them that he describes? They go out Mm -hmm. from them. Yeah, Yeah. they don't remain in the word remain and Mm -hmm. abide. It's the Mm -hmm. same idea, right? So they're they're the the non-abiders. Non-abiders, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like there were some who had had a superficial relationship with the body of Christ, but then at some point they said, no, I'm out, and and they walked away. Yeah, and the key aspect of that is that they deny that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah. And so they become anti-Christ, right, against Christ. Sometimes we take words like that and, like, so spiritualize them that it's hard to relate to. When you just look at it, anti-Christ, against Mm -hmm. Christ, and that's who they become. And they're those who deceive, mm-hmm. uh, the Antichrist deceive, they deny the Father and the Son, they abandoned the body. One thing that we know about the ancient world as it relates to a lot of these letters is the church experienced a lot of persecution and mm-hmm. a lot of tension. And even if it was just before the Roman persecution that happens, there was a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles and there were so many things. So there's so many reasons to give up. And these are the people that, that give into that. And then those who say they know Jesus, but they don't obey him are hypocrites, Mm -hmm. which is kind of tied into this whole Mm -hmm. idea as well. Daniel, what do you make of the fact that, and this is coming out of my own theological background, so I'm going to ask, what do you make of the fact that he speaks of Antichrist as something that is yet future, but Antichrists Mm -hmm. that are also present? I wonder, and that's all I can do, but I wonder if at some point there will be like a figurehead 
where all of the spirit of the Antichrist, which later in First John he talks about that, yeah. the spirit of the Antichrist. I wonder if there'll be like a representative of that spirit that is much mm-hmm. more like of a focal point for mm-hmm. people to see. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And yeah. I don't know that we know. But I think what is interesting here is that there's a bigger story than maybe this one person. And that yeah. is that there's the spirit of the Antichrist that can fill just about and There's anybody. ongoing opposition, even though there may be an ultimate point of opposition focused and on And there's the a very personal involvement. <laughs> yeah. You know, I may not ever become the Antichrist, God willing, but, you know, I, I think I can be a little Antichrist. Right. I can be Antichrist at some times. Yeah. I think sometimes we present these caricatures mm-hmm. of evil, of deception, in a way of distancing ourselves from that thing that's to say, yep. that's way over there. I'm yeah. not the mm-hmm. antichrist, right? Because right. that is this mm-hmm. very specific person we see diabolical in all their yep. ways. Whereas this is like, like you said, at least it's, it's closer than that. It's mm-hmm. what are ways in which if I don't love mm-hmm. my brother or sister, yeah. if I start to get in love with the world, I'm being anti-Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where he anchored it at the beginning of chapter two, yeah. right? is yeah. you're either walking in light or darkness. And the way we know that is how you're treating others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a very much of an anchor here of like, don't think you're above being anti-Christ-like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we all have that potential. We all make mistakes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the, one of the primary reasons that he's writing this essay is to encourage them not to be like mm-hmm. that. And so he also is describing faithful ones. And what are some of the characteristics of those who are faithful? Well, one, they abide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's huge. And I don't think that's just like, I'm staying at church, mm-hmm. but it's, I am in communion. I'm in fellowship. I'm in connection with Jesus mm-hmm. and with others who are connected to Jesus. And as a result of those things, I stay in church and I stay yeah, in yeah. fellowship. Yeah. But it's not just the affiliation with an institution sometimes that people go, well, I'm still there. Mm-hmm. But are you really there? Yeah. Are you really plugged in? You know, I think it's uh, interesting. He talks about the anointing that you received mm-hmm. from him abides in you. And the anointing then teaches you. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that, Daniel. What have you learned about that? I mean, I immediately go back to what happens in Acts. So after the gospel of John, the church begins to explode and it explodes because of a very real anointing that happens, which is the Holy Spirit descends in a very real way. And as a result of the Holy Spirit descending, this truth about Jesus gets proclaimed and begins to spread around the world. And so I think probably in the same way that the word word is used, the Mm -hmm. word of God, and it's usually the message about Jesus, the good news, the gospel or Jesus, um, or Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's what this anointing is as well. My mind went the same place yours did, Daniel, only I went back to the upper room where we were in an earlier conversation mm-hmm. where Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And that sounds very much like the way he's describing the role of this anointing. So the Holy yeah. Spirit is yeah. really the person of the God. Yeah, I think sometimes people forget that the anointing with oil is symbolic of the outpouring of the spirit mm-hmm. and that walking with the spirit is a reflection of abiding. Yeah. And what will that anointing 
talk about or preach, it'll be the truth, Mm -hmm. the truth about Jesus being the Messiah, the truth about the relationship between the Father and the Son, all the things the Antichrists are against. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I I see in this, as we kind of bring this first week to a close, just we have this old man, this old wise man, Mm -hmm. and he's sitting on a rocking chair. Maybe it's worn. It's seen the sun for a while, (laughs) sitting in front of maybe an old house and I don't know if he has a stoop or a deck or what it is, but he's doing what old people do. He's showing a lot of concern for those who are coming after him for the next generation. And his wisdom's directly tied to knowing Jesus personally. He saw him. He heard him. He got to rest his head on his chest. He's watched the world take a few turns. And as a result of that, he's encouraging these people to abide, to stay, to remain faithful because Jesus really is worth following. Yeah, you're in what we call First John. You really do sense John's concern for passing on the wisdom of Jesus and how the gospel and what Jesus taught and ultimately came to do affects the way we live our lives. We'll take our seat on the porch next to John in our next podcast as well to continue the study of First John. And on behalf of Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Orion Day, and Rasul Berry, I'm Brian Hedinger. Thanks for being part of the group. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.